0: Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Keridan Dovey. Keridan is a writer of fiction, creative nonfiction, essays and profiles. Her books include Bloodkin, Only the Animals and In the Garden of Fugitives. Now Keridan is joining me today to discuss her new novel. This one, it's an absolutely terrific one. I can't wait to share it with you. It's called Life After Truth. I'm Andrew Popel and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. 2 SER broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I'm recording on the lands of the Darug and the Gundungurra people. I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to their lands. Now, the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast, it's all about books, writing, and literary culture. If you want to help others discover these things, if you love Australian writing, you can give us a rating, you can leave a comment, you can tell a friend. Um, It's a great way to share books with people by listening to the show. Now, on the show today, Life After Truth, on the eve of their 15th reunion, five friends return to Harvard University, the scene of their fondest memories. Now spread around the world, the reunion propels them back towards younger conceptions of themselves. Unfortunately, a reunion is not limited just to friends, and the group must confront old flames, bullies, and the ubiquitous jerk, now the son of the American president. Fred Reese, is one of the most despised men in the country, but when he winds up dead... Did anyone hate him enough to kill him? Now, I have had a terrific conversation with Keridan, so I've actually split this conversation into two. Uh, And in the first part, Keridan and I are going to be talking about the ways in which Life After Truth, she uh, sometimes inadvertently flips genre and really challenges some genre ideas. So join me for part one of Keridan Dovey's conversation on Life After Truth. My name is Andrew Popel, and I'm really excited to be joined on the line by Keridan Dovey. Keridan is a writer of fiction, creative nonfiction, essays, and profiles. Her books include Blood Kin, Only the Animals, and In the Garden of Fugitives. Today, she is joining me to discuss her new novel, Life After Truth. Keridan, thank you so much. It's it's so great to have you here. Oh, thanks,
1: Andrew. Thanks for
0: having me on. Now, Life After Truth such a fascinating setup such a great title on the eve of their 15th reunion five friends return to Harvard University and the scene of some of their fondest memories they're now spread around the world and the reunion offers an opportunity perhaps a trap propelling them back towards their younger younger conceptions of themselves and look I've got to admit Kerden how to characterize life after truth was enormously challenging for me because this is not simply one kind of story as I found it. But I thought, I want to start with a structural choice, um, perhaps around the plotting. Your prologue opens with the son of the American president, a Harvard alum, returning for the reunion, dead. And I was already... For a detective-style kind of crime story, I was ready to follow the clues to solve the murder. All the while wondering if the killer would be more hero than villain, because this is, um, let's say, this is a this is a familiar-looking um, hierarchy in the American system, and you do sort of give us this, but it's in the form of this in-depth exploration of the psyches of your ensemble of characters. You take us back to the beginning of the reunion before the. Opening event happens. Were you conscious of mystery tropes as you were plotting, as you were setting this up? Did you want the reader looking at your characters in this way?
1: Wow, that is such a good question, Andrew. Um, yeah, I mean, I think I, I think two two answers to that. I knew that um, I was going to be doing a lot of reminiscing through the characters. Um, and lots of sort of stream of consciousness remembering of the past and then interwoven into the, you know, live in-person events of this reunion weekend. So it was a nice sort of ring-fenced way to set up these characters to interact. But then I knew that they were all going to, um, you know, internally be looking back at their own past and really trying to uh, measure themselves against their own past. And so I just, I think I just wanted to have a sense of that there, there was something else at stake, um, in the book. And you're right. It's not a murder mystery. Um, and anybody who picks it up hoping that, that it will be, will probably be uh, disappointed. Although at the end, you probably, you know, you may or may not figure out who actually killed this, um, this horrible son of a evil president. Um, but it just gave me, um, something a little bit more to, to play with and to to propel some of the narratives. It's something I actually struggle with is dialogue and um, in real time scene writing. That's probably my least favourite part of writing fiction. And so I think I try and find ways to force myself to kind of keep bringing them back into that present moment um, and to um, put them in conversation with each other, and not to just get stuck in a in a you know looking backwards uh, sort of um, way of writing, which is probably where I feel most comfortable. Mm.
0: I am absolutely going to beg to disagree with you, though, because any mystery writer, any mystery fan, I think, picking up Life After Truth will find, intentionally or otherwise, this incredible riff and flip of the mystery narrative, because. It's all there. You have this this closed unit. You have, I mean, even even insofar as Harvard is uh, a, a rather open campus, and you present that there are many people around through your narrative styling, you present us with this closed unit, and we we naturally look at the group in that way. So, I mean, I, I thought it was just a fantastic frame, and again. In flipping kind of ideas around genre, you also you end the book with that same universally loathed president who kind of seems to be um, haunting forever the wings in the way that a universally loathed president might seem to haunt our subconscious. He's there swearing <laughs> vengeance on the killers. I have no problem revealing this detail from probably the second to third last page of the book because it, it doesn't bear on... Your characters' lives, per se, but it also it felt like the opening scene of kind of a Liam Neeson or a Harrison Ford esque thriller. I mean, even the <laughs> even the dialogue felt a little bit like that that cliched "I have a very particular set of skills, I come and get you" sort of thing. Um, and instead instead of this thriller, you give us the spaces between the lives that are of the so called. Uh, the people of consequence you give us the lives of the the ordinary people who have to go about in the world that they create i wondered did we looking at have we been missing these more ordinary lives in our extraordinarily extraordinary world these days that was a bit clunky
1: yeah no i think um <clears throat> the campus murder mystery um is, is such a great genre right so i think also um that, w- that was present in my mind, like, um, you know, David Lodge's kind of campus murder mystery where there's a there's a, a very, uh, you know, um, dark undertone to it. Um, and then, of course, Donna Tartt, The Secret History, where it's this gripping story, but actually it's an exploration of, um, you know, young people's intellectual uh, passions and pursuits, but put into the structure of a campus murder mystery. Um and even a Leon Moriarty, the way that she puts the bell jar over um, a group of characters and then, you know, throws a dead body in there. But again, it's never about it's that much about the who done it, but it's about the um, shock waves that, you know, that throws within the social group. Um, but in terms of focusing not on the um, the famous people in the book, um, that was a very conscious choice. and it was something that... Um, was a bit tricky for me to decide to do. Um, and in some of the uh, descriptions of the novel, people have been sort of saying that the, that the characters of Fred Reese um, and then Jules, who's a famous actress, and neither of whom do we hear from at all in the book, but they were inspired by Natalie Portman and Jared Kushner, who were classmates of mine. Um, and they weren't inspired by them. I mean, I didn't know them both, but. Um, but I was fascinated by that idea of taking two people who are sort of at the dark and the light opposite poles of fame, um, and putting them in in this you know place that is already a high pressure sort of situation with Harvard undergraduates. So you're looking back in time to when they had a different kind of fame, and then the notoriety of uh, particularly the Fred Reese character at their 15 year reunion. Um, and I I wanted to. Yes, so I consciously did not go into their voices. At one point, um, somebody had suggested, someone who'd read it, that I actually have Jules as one of the characters that the narration is vocalized through, but I just, I knew that was not, you know, the right way to go, that it had to be just the ordinary mortals who are old friends of these people and who orbit around them. Um, but they become the pillars against which these other, you know, ordinary people who happened to go to Harvard, so had been told when they were young that they had a particular kind of promise or potential, but then, you know, a lot of time has passed and they've had to realize that, you know, failure and loss and heartbreak um, and that huge fall from that early promise is all part of coming to terms with midlife. You know, in a way, whether you went to Harvard or not, it's something everybody has to has to face: um, is letting go of that sense of being told that you were special when you were young. Um, so yeah, it was a it was a conscious decision to give them the stage. Um, you know, so you've got these spotlights on the on either side of the two famous characters who titillate the whole class and to kind of give the whole class also a feeling of having been special. That's the interesting thing, I think, is that
0: enough times
1: past that those kinds of fame and notoriety have lost their charm for the good characters in the book. And it's only the bad characters um, or the troubled characters who are still trying to seek out that feeling of being, you know, somehow uh, exceptional or standing outside of uh, the normal, you know, um, the normal people of, of the community. Mm-hmm.
0: You've kind of beautifully anticipated what my next question was going to be there because I was really interested in how within that ensemble cast you had privileged points of view and and the way you had assigned narrative perspective. You've really you've kind of covered everything I I was going to ask about that. But I I wondered if you were if you were conscious as you were writing that what that would then do is self consciously position the reader along with, sort of emotionally, along with Mariam and with Rowan and with Eloise and um, with Jomo, because because we do not have that interior point of view of Fred, because we don't have that interior point of view of Jules, we are jealously looking for and guarding snippets, especially because we know that Fred's going to wind up dead. And that just that sounds like a bad lyric from from a non-novelty 90s song fred's dead but i was i was constantly looking for him and what what that ended up doing for me there's a particular moment um towards the end of the book where in our limited experience of fred you give us something which i'm i'm going to i'm going to run with the the more sort of classical pathos idea of pathetic he looks quite pathetic in a way that made made me doubt all the villainy that had been built up in my mind.
1: I made Jules a very vulnerable character. Um, and then, yeah, with Fred, I think in some earlier drafts, I had made him a bit too much of the cardboard sort of villain. <laughs> and so it was only in later drafts that I realised there had to be a couple of moments like that where you, against your will, sort of cared for him Um and even that, you know, that scene that you mentioned at the end of, of President Reece, um before he looks in the cameras and, you know, declares vengeance on whoever killed his son, but there's a earlier moment where Mariam's watching him on the screen and suddenly realises, even though she despises this person, that he's lost a child, mm. you know, like a parent's worst nightmare. And so she has this brief fleeting moment of compassion for this man. Um, I was aware of doing that um and yeah i guess it's uh it's just to help them um be yeah so it sounds like a cliche but just have a little moment of becoming real to the reader um so that you know the the, the death of of fred is, is not um played as a camp kind of you know, uh, campus rump kind of thing, but that there's a moment of realizing that there's some pain there as well.
0: It actually, it was it was really effective because it left me with this idea, both that that vision of of Fred, as I suggested, being. I'm going to skirt around this because it is quite an important scene in the book. But then also that scene of the the president sitting forlorn, absolutely bereft on the, the stairs that appears in the news footage. It left me with this sense that these are actually quite pathetic human beings who it's only through this kind of casual and um, indifferent exercise of power that ri- they rise to any sort of you know true villainy. And I'm thinking of the scene where Jomo is, is jogging Fred Reese overtakes him with his security guard, and then it's in a moment of of kind of adolescent competition. Jomo goes, "I'm gonna, I'm going to overtake him. I'm going to prove myself superior." Not thinking for a second that he is about to absolutely get smashed by a couple of secret service guys, uh, which is of course what happens. And it's it, it was almost this sense of powerful people don't even have to exercise their power just by their presence power is exercised for them and can cause so much harm. Again, I'm I'm over-reading that situation, I'm sure, but these glimpses really showed me a very interesting character portrait.
1: Yes, and I think that was something that was so strange about being at Harvard as a young person, and I'd gone there on a scholarship from Sydney, and I'd never been to America. And the campus wasn't, you know, I sort of had assumed it would be a certain kind of privilege, all the same kind of privilege, but because they've got this huge endowment, which itself is a form of privilege, but they give so much financial aid to students from around the world. So the actual student population is incredibly diverse and really interesting. And But then there were these pockets of privilege of that, you know, of of that kind of, you know, and and I think they think Jared paid his way to, to get in There and there was you could just touch shoulders with some of that way of operating in the world and that sense of um, power and entitlement which I've never seen anything like it Mm. and uh, it's it's disturbing when you see it but we also have to admit it's like a little bit thrilling and I think that is something that I try and get the other characters to process is that along the way you know a lot of them are, are sometimes seduced by. This proximity to power and and to influence, and um, and that sense of complicity that always interests me in anything I'm writing. I'm really interested not in the outright perpetrators or the outright victims, but the you know beneficiaries in the middle and the complicities and the things where we prefer not to, you know, show our allegiances. And um, that's the kind of grey area that I love to explore and. Um, it was something that I had seen play out, you know, over the years in my own um class. Uh, just a yeah, an intoxication in the early days around that closeness to power or being at the center of the world. You know, you were sort of told a lot as a as a student there, like you can do anything in the world as your oysterness. Um, which is actually a very disturbing thing to tell an eighteen year old <laughs> because um I mean, delusions of grandeur and all of that. So, um, so yes, it was just really good to be able to not be focusing on that so much. It's like would would them have written a novel set yeah. uh, amongst characters who were actually going through that experience? Because I don't think it would be very interesting because they wouldn't yet have the life experience to be able to put that in context. Yeah. But the sense of time having passed and people's lives having, you know, not gone not gone great always um, and uh, and then just lay over that, the, the inevitable questioning that we all do when you when you hit midlife um, of wondering, you know, what is a good life? And you're suddenly horrified or certainly aren't fighting this. I turned 40 yesterday and uh, just wondering how I haven't figured this out yet, <laughs> you know? <laughs>
0: I'd love to focus. Yeah, I my bit-
1: characters similarly
0: yeah. I'd love to focus a little bit on on that legacy. And I, I guess, I mean, even myself looking at it, I'm sort of similar age to to these characters. So you, you know, you probably hit me a little bit in the feels um, thinking about that. But in calling the novel "Life After Truth," initially you capture something of the last four to five years. But then, as it sits in the story, I started to focus on those first two words, this idea of life after, and returning to Harvard for the characters, it triggers, as you just pointed out, that that almost mass introspection. As a group, they look back on their lives, they challenge what they find in their lives. And I wondered if that idea of life after truth, yeah, was was conceiving of yourself in different life stages. This idea that you know you have a you have a certain truth when you're in your teens, and then a different truth when you're in your twenties, and so on. Um. Yes, I I think probably
1: subconsciously that, that was. Um, where I was thinking, I think initially I was just very pleased with my own wordplay because um, the Harvard motto in Latin from the 1600s is Veritas, so truth, mm. and so I was pleased that you know um, I had found a way to both look to put the um, looking glass over the notion of you know life after Harvard and where that goes it generally goes downhill, mm. um, and then the poet truth world that. We've all been forced into, um, you know, thanks to Trump, but also thanks to big tech and all the other um, things that have contributed to us no longer uh, sharing a reality that we can all agree on.
0: And in perhaps in the thread uh, of in the thread of your narrative, uh, we also have complicity in this, as much as each of the each of your characters may feel that they haven't achieved something that they perhaps wanted to. They were they were at all times complicit in that. They they made the choices that brought them to where they are.
1: Yes, absolutely. And um, I think that's where it's powerful to be at midlife because you have to be throwing off <laughs> any of your old excuses and playing of others. And, you know, it's that long, hard, cold look at your own choices and decisions without it off on, you know, someone else. Um, so they are, they're complicit, you know, they happily took the privilege and the mantle that going to Harvard gave them and then um, they, they you know, made that work for them. And there's a scene where Jomo actively questions even his own positioning, where he um, – you know, acknowledges that he's a gem dealer. He deals in precious, precious gems and makes bespoke luxury jewelry for rich people. Um, and he got into business school because in the end he had to swallow his pride and go and ask Fred Reese Sr. Mm-hmm. before he was president for a recommendation to get into business school. So yeah, I'm, I, I, I made sure that every one of the characters, um, had to have that moment of reckoning you know with with themselves
0: That's it for this Great Conversation with Keridan Dovey. Keridan's new novel is Life After Truth. It's out now through Penguin and that was just part one of the conversation. Join me tomorrow I'm going to release part two where Keridan and I, we discuss ideas around power and parenthood in Life After Truth. Great Conversations is recorded on the lands of the Darug and Gundungurra people and broadcast from the lands of the Gadigal people at 2 SER's Broadway Studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. Thank you for joining me today. And look, I am recording in quite an idyllic setting and uh, there's a few cicadas singing in the background. So, if you heard them, thank you for indulging them. If you want to keep up with books, writing and literary culture, you can follow Final Draft on the socials. Just look for at Final Draft 2SER. If you subscribe, I promise not only will there be a new, there's a new part two of this conversation tomorrow. You'll also get a new Great Conversation every week. I'm Andrew Popel. I'll be back tomorrow with another great conversation from Final Draft. Happy reading.